Welcome to the Boardroom's Best, the podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, leaders, and those who want to rise and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, charitable foundations, and exciting, high-flying entrepreneurial companies. I'm Nancy May, the CEO of the BoardBench Companies, and I'm your host here today at the Boardroom's Best. Our guest today on the Boardroom's Best is Brian Matamore, co-founder and CEO of the acclaimed Growth Engine Company an innovation agency that challenges the leadership of boards and corporate leaders worldwide. Brian is one of the country's top experts in applied creativity, ideation, and innovation management. Over one-third of the country's top Fortune 500 companies have worked with Brian and his team of innovation experts. Through his unique process, he has led the innovation of over 200 successful new products and services, generating over $3 billion in new product sales. Brian is the author of three of the best-selling business books of all times, The Idea Stormers, How to Lead and Inspire Creative Breakthroughs, 99% Inspiration, A Real-World Guide to Business Creativity, and 21 Days to a Big Idea, which outlines an empirically validated process for helping corporate leaders, high-growth companies, and aspiring entrepreneurs and boards create a continuous stream of big ideas. It is a pleasure and honor to have my good friend, Brian Matamore, as our guest here today on The Boardroom's Best. Hey, Brian, it's Nancy, and welcome to The Boardroom's Best. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Nancy. Thanks for having me. So everybody who's listening in here today, I'm going to tell you a little story about uh, how Brian and I first met. I'm going to say, oh, God, I think it was about 25 years ago now. Don't give the number. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not our secret anymore. (laughs) Anyway, we met through a a longtime friend who has sadly left this earth as of, uh, you know, I I guess a number of years ago. But that was Stan Mason, otherwise known as the Wizard of West. And Stan was a pretty interesting magician who created all sorts of amazing products for for companies that that we all you know, that products we all use today that are brand names right from the early days of Masonware, you know, the first uh, microwavable cookware, which was put in his name, Stan Mason, on through to the little strips, the little that they don't really use anymore, but the little thread strips that were in the band aids, and the list goes on from there. But uh, since Brian and I have met, uh, he has been working his own form of magic in the corporate (laughs) environment. So don't laugh because it's true. (laughs) And most recently, um, he has been noted as having one of the best all-time business books in history. And that was 21 Days, or that is 21 Days to a Big Idea. So if you haven't read it, I highly recommend this. Yes, this is a personal endorsement of Brian. (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you, Nancy. Yeah, you're welcome, Brian. So let's talk a little bit about your—I'll call it wizardry, um, if that's the correct terminology. But you do this this kind of interesting work of helping companies really reinvent themselves in a challenging times, not just in the corporate environment, but also in the boardroom. That's true. You know, we're an innovation agency. We're based in Norwalk, Connecticut. And so the class at cocktail parties, what do people say, well, what do you help companies do? And I, I say, well, we help them come up with new stuff. And, and typically people interpret that as new products, uh, which is certainly a big part of our work. But uh, an increasingly important part of our work, and this is true, I think, of interest particularly to the boardroom, 
is that we are uh, working on strategies for organizations. And those strategies um, move way beyond SWATs and analytical perspectives and studying the market and all the, all the good work that you need to do um, at the start of, of building a strategy. But in our opinion, that's only the very first step. Uh, the second step is really then being creative about all the opportunities um, that could help grow the organization. And, the, and those could be, you know, new business models, uh, certainly uh, new partnerships uh, would be part of it, and, um, and, and even, of course, new strategies for the, for the brands and the divisions, et cetera, et cetera, acquisition set strategies, leveraging the new technologies. All those things have made, uh, and, the, and the increasingly uh, volatile and changing environment has made, that, made it the case that, that we're often called on to do uh, that kind of work with the boardroom. Right. I'm going to venture out on a limb and say that, in general, most board members are not what I would call creative engines. They're compliance creatures, um, and it's because they've been forced into those environments because of the, you know, the exchanges and what goes on. Probably less so in the private environments, unless you're dealing with private equity. In, in that front, then you're, you're being driven by the financials, as every business should be driven to some level from financials because you're in business to make money. Yep. Yeah, and I think, you know, to be fair to the, to the board members, I mean, there there's, has been, and in my opinion always will be, a sort of dynamic tension between, uh, you know, sort of maintaining the status quo, and that's not a negative, you know, right. sort of doing everything you can to leverage uh, the assets and, and competencies of the current organization. But then there's this sort of whole creative thing, and the disciplines are so different, and, you know, the risk profiles are so different. You know, when you have a, an ongoing organization, you can do a great, great amount of work to sort of reduce risk, and I think that's a, a big part of the board members' jobs, and making those sort of strategic and uh, informed decisions is, is critical. Right. Um, but when you try to bring that to the creative, if you will, the creative side or the entrepreneurial side or the entrepreneurial side, whatever you want to call it, um, those disciplines don't really work anymore. So your your risk profile has to, to um, or your risk tolerance has to increase dramatically, and that and that's hard. Um, yeah. That's hard because many of the board members have not been trained in those thinking processes. Well, and we're also trained in the boardroom to protect not necessarily push the envelope in a way that, as you, as you said, is, is a risk issue for the company, yet no risk, no gain. So you've yep. got a kind of a bit of this sort of push-me-pull-you environment. Now, one of the things that you do in the boardroom and also with corporate executives is something called wargaming, correct? Yes. So let's it dive is. into that a little bit because it's, it's a fascinating scenario and it's one that, that I think actually more board members would benefit from, from really diving in and, and having a little bit more of an understanding of what's going on in the corporation as it relates to building that strategy and understanding competition and even understanding where those threats are. So if they're, they're charged with protecting the company and reducing risk, how can you know how to do that if you don't know what's lurking around the dark corners of the alley, right? Well, that's, that's well said. And, um, the, the wargaming, as the listeners may know, has been pioneered by the military, of course, to, sure. to strategize and get ready for, for engagements. What 
and so that's been around in corporate America for many years now, those same models. The, the twist on it that we've added because of the, the changing environment is we do something we call disruptive wargaming. So what makes that difference in conventional wargaming is that not only do we have our, our clients role play the direct competition, so that if you're in the insurance business, you, you might role play State Farm or Progressive or Allstate, but also role play potential disruptors for your industry. So that could be Amazon, Google, and Walmart, because frankly, if they enter the insurance business, right. you're, you could be out of business, frankly. Well, know, the insur- yeah, the insurance business is such an old line business that, again, there's an environment that's become a little comfortable, but then they start out, they're running on thin margins to become very lucrative at the end. And comfortable. Comfort's well, not a good place to be necessarily in this environment today. Yeah, and also, I mean, if you know, it, it's all about the the consumer or customer, right? And if right. Walmart has a hundred million people going through their doors each week, or Amazon has that many people on, you know, sixty million uh, Prime members, and they decide to get an insurance, boy, that can be a real threat. Right, and if I'm a policyholder of, let's say, you know, a large insurance company, now they've got me until that policy runs out, correct? So, I would say that, you know, in general, the perception is that some of these large Insurance, and we're picking on insurance companies right now, obviously, um, become a little bit more comfortable because they don't have to work so hard to keep that customer anymore once they've sort of got them. Well, I, I think that's right. And I, we actually did do a disruptive wargaming session with an insurance company, a specialized insurance company. And the challenge in their case was that, for the CEO, that is, the new CEO, they had record quarters stacked on one another, wow. two or three in a row. And so if you're the CEO and you're recognizing that there could be um, threats slash opportunities out there, how do you get people to change? It's really, really hard because, I mean, if you've got a winning formula, you're not going to change it. And so when when we did this disruptive wargaming session with them, and we actually did it with the U.S. group, the international or global group, Mm -hmm. and the board, and one of the most dramatic things that came out of that, there were several dramatic things, but, but one in particular was we had salespeople come up to us. And there, you know, there are 50 people in these meetings, right? right? You need everybody involved. Typically, there are two days, although with a board, we did it one day. With all those, one of the most surprising things was the salespeople came up to us and said, oh, my gosh. I am going to sell entirely different than I used to Wow! because they, they, it used to be, you know, I'm great and, and, I'll, and I'll give it to you if you want. Now it's a much more humble sale because they recognize that the competition could come in, one of these disruptors, if you will. Not to be so cocky as a salesperson. Well, yeah. Right? You know? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, most salespeople in general will look at, and I'm not, again, pointing fingers at salespeople in any particular corner, but they are the lifeblood of, a, of an organization. Yes, you've got the R&D without the R&D and the new products to sell, you, you don't have anything to sell. But without your salespeople on the front, what are, how are you going to get your products out there? So can we, and, and I may be turning things a little different. So what happens when a company decides to unplug their salespeople? Have you talked about that or gone through those kind of environments? Because I've seen that happen before. We're going to cut costs. Well, we don't need Joe, the salesperson, or Sally, the salesperson. We've got the customer. Well, and of course, the world is is moving towards you online know and other online, things. faster, better, quicker, digital, and all the rest. And and certainly, there's a place for that. And and uh, part of part of the wargaming strategy stuff is that you do kind of recognize that the world is changing, and that you have to certainly the HR um, and even the board members have to be aware that you know we're going to need new talents as we move into the. Mm-hmm in the next 20, 30 years. And so, you know, clearly there will always be a case for, for sales, and I would hope marketing people. But, um, 
but keep our own jobs, right? <laughs> but but as but as as the world changes, we we did some work um, with with a, a large organization with their sales teams, and these creative disciplines that we know so well and are expert at um, can be used to find new opportunities for the for the sales team. Um, and, and I, forgive me, this is another insurance example. Frankly, we do as much as or more in CPG and, and finance and pharma as we do in insurance. But we, we did some creative selling uh, work with a $100 million insurance company, a different one than the wargaming. And this one technique, it was problem redefinition, led to a 52% increase in sales within a year. And and that was an unsolicited comment from the marketing CMO. He just said mm-hmm. we used uh, the technique happened to be the problem redefinition one, but they used all these techniques and, and increased 52% because it got them to be more creative about who was selling their offerings, how they were selling them, and to whom they were selling them. Those were the three key features that we helped them uh, rethink creatively. Well, and if the board doesn't ever even understand that and they're dealing with compliance, regulatory, and financial issues, then our belief here at, at BoardBench is that, quite frankly, the board needs to be an advocate for the business and also an ambassador as well. Now we're not salespeople in the boardroom, but if there's an opportunity to um, to open a door, whether it be a public or private company, and create those relationships on a different level, we need to know about the businesses that we're representing and the customers that we serve in order to do that well, too. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I my view is that the board, uh, in addition to all the, the, the roles that you mentioned previously, compliance, et cetera, I do think that the board's role increasingly in these times is to sort of bring, bring in best-in-class, um, right. state-of-the-art technologies and thinking processes, if you will. Of course, I'm a tad biased. Of course, they I, have to understand it first before they can even bring it in or even be aware of it. That's the it's first awareness. step, right? You've got to start with awareness, and then, and then you go from there. Awareness, the training, factor, I call youth, it. <laughs> implementation, all the rest. Yeah. So, yeah, I think think that's that's a, a valid role for, for board members. And sort of within a broader uh, frame of that is as provocateur. I really think that uh, board members in these times need to be provocateurs and, and say, well, yeah, okay, but uh, have we talked to the customer? Yeah. <laughs> you know, have we ca- talked to the consumer? I realize you have this cool technology, but does anybody care? Right. So the next time I, I meet a, a new board member, I'm going to ask, oh, so you're a provocateur of XYZ company. I know. I Actually, I'm speaking at a program tomorrow in the biotechnology environment, and I'm going to get a lot of eyeballs rolling in their heads saying, what the hell is she talking about? So, but, hey, you know, we're, a part of our job is to sort of shake things up a little bit. So thinking about shaking things up, a yeah. lot of companies actually grow through not just organic growth, but when there's that, that sort of that thin line and they think, how else can we grow? It's through acquisition. So yes. we talked a little bit about the other day about partnerships and acquisitions and, and how this kind of process really pushes the intellect um, and the intellectual uh, capital and thinking about what goes on in that board environment in the C-suite on how to think about partnerships. And I have a bias about partnerships, having been through it and seen what works, and we can talk about that later, but let's sort of hear what's happened on your front. Yeah, I mean, there, the, the, we think of partnerships really in two ways. Um, there's sort of internal partnerships, if you will, or internal joint ventures or an internal uh, project development. And, and interestingly Both large enough, and, and small companies, correct? 
Well, I'm thinking more large companies, but certainly small companies. There could be, you know, a, a few of these divisions that could be doing, you know, servicing different clients, and they could have quote a professional div- division and a consumer mm-hmm. division or, or whatever, a commodity product and a specialized product, um, and all of which we've we've worked on is is how do you leverage those and how do you organize for those? Because if you have a commodity business, maybe you're sort of that's a cash cow for you, and you're not trying to necessarily grow that and maybe recognize that the, the bigger margins and the bigger opportunity is in the specialized side of the house. Uh, but, but we have found that it's often challenging to get those uh, groups to work together. We did do a session, interestingly enough, with Fiserv. It's a financial services supplier. They do uh, credit checks and they do backroom right. stuff for banks. Um, like an Equifax? Uh, yes, yes, that, that, yes. But we had it was uh, eight divisions that came together uh, in in a in a sales meeting and mm-hmm. and with their senior executives, et cetera. And we spent a day sort of ideating ways that they could cross sell opportunities with different products across the divisions. And it was again, it was banks. So the top twenty five right. banks were the the target. Well. After a day, they valued that work at $125 million. Oh. And, and, you know, these are sales guys, and so we really push them. We said, and that's one day. And that's one day, right? And we said, hey, guys, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> you're blowing smoke here, right? This is not, this is not, come on, is, do you really think it's $125 million? Right. And they said they did, and which, you know, which is not a, it's not easy to say because at some point they might be responsible for delivering that, right? Right, because you, I mean, you're right. You've got to put you know, feet to the fire, and yeah. if you're a little too bold, sometimes you go, oh, now can so, I actually deliver? So we checked back uh, a year later with the group, right. the, the uh, head of sales and the CEO, and they told us that they had reckon, realized $72 million of that $125 million from this cross-selling. Now you have to mm-hmm. figure out incentives for both groups. That's a big challenge right. often because you don't want to sell somebody else's thing if you're not incentivized. But that, that's a one-day meeting that, you know, where they realized ultimately 72, ideas that led to $72 million worth. So that's, I, I mean, I do think there are huge opportunities for sort of internal ventures, if you will, cross-selling opportunities. And then... That's not even going out and talking to the customer on the street or, or you know, in another corporate office. And you and I both in the early days grew up in the ad business or in the consumer goods business. I mean, I was at J. Walter Thompson in my early career. And the biggest problem that they had was getting, you know, different sides of of the office to talk to one another. And I think the problem is still there in in the advertising industry today. But but here's financial services. Oh, my God, you know. Yeah, and they're so, printing money, literally. Right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they don't even have to talk to the customer. I love it. <laughs> um, Tell me so how then, to do that. <laughs> so then, uh, I mean, I think the other side of this is is the quote, if you will, external ventures, and those are, you know, those come with their own challenges. Right. And we've done joint ideation sessions or product development sessions or new business model sessions or whatever it was between organizations. Now, again, there, there are challenges with that because you have to, you know, get the lawyers involved up front. But you can do it. It's not impossible. And we've done it with in CPG. We've done it in insurance. We've done it in finance. And we have seen real opportunities there. We even, we even did it uh, with one company where they, we did jo- a joint session 
between this company and one of their biggest competitor against whom they both had lawsuits going. Yeah. You know, they had patent infringement suits, etc. And yet we were doing a joint session with them because they both realized it was to their benefit to find a way to create a, a new opportunity for both organizations that they had both identified. So maybe this is something that uh, law firms, litigators, and mediators should actually consider doing with their customers as well when they've sort of, or their, their clients when they've come to this headbutting scenario instead of uh, fighting each other, maybe you actually can turn this into a profitable engagement instead, right? Yeah, and you know, the lawyers like sometimes like that, sometimes they don't because the fees either go up or down. Yeah. Uh, you know, in our work, typically it creates opportunities either for sure. package designers or, or even lawyers who have to who have to figure figure out how this is going to work yeah. uh, at the end of the day. One plus one can actually equal three or four. Absolutely, and I think I, this is can only grow as a trend because there's so many opportunities now. The global competition, et cetera, et cetera, means that we have to do things quicker, faster, better. And you can't, you cannot do it all yourself. No. And so, you know, Procter & Gamble, when they pioneered getting rid of their not invented here and the open sourcing and all that kind of stuff, to me is only the beginning. Certainly open sourcing with outside expertise, but now even more, uh, quote, joint ventures. Of course, there's a lot of this going on, but I just think the board members should be constantly looking for those opportunities and, and even doing creative exercises. Right. You know, if, if we mash together our company with another company, what new business models would it imply? That will open up everybody's minds. Um, well, it, stretch, it stretches the confines of what they're used to working in. It's also a little uncomfortable. It and yeah, I mean, it's putting you in a, in a very tight place that you're not used to working. And I've always been an advocate of pushing, you know, myself and our company here really out to the edges where we're totally uncomfortable on some of the things that we might be saying and learning more about it. Because without doing that, we don't know what's possible. Well, you're absolutely right. And, you know, you're, you're making me think of a project we did for BNY Mellon. I can mention it. And we did several projects on, quote, reinventing banking and inventing new ways to go to market. I remember one two-day session. It was blessed by the CEO. We had the top 100 people in that organization over a two-day session. I mean, can you imagine the expense of that? Oh, yeah. But we did that because we had to come up with new ways to go to market. And it was a bit of a risk on our part. We had them imagining, if you will, joint ventures. We used to call it company takeover, but people freaked out that they would be fired. So we don't call it that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> we, we call it uh, joint venturing. And so we had them imagine joint ventures on how they could service the customer better with Nordstrom yep. and Google and Walmart. Walmart and Amazon and all these people, and that turned out to be the most effective idea or technique, if you will, throughout the two days. If you're mashing banking together with McDonald's, you cannot help but get interesting new business models and new ways to, to think about how to go to market. Right, or my Gucci shoes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my Gucci shoes. And, and by the way, people should understand, the listeners should understand that this thing is a numbers game. So you right. might say, well, that sounds stupid. Well, it, in a lot of cases, it is stupid and it doesn't work. But it only takes, you know, 10% of the ideas that come out of these sessions are any good, and, and that's all you need. You just need one or two ideas. Right. So we're, we're on the joint venture discussion. Let's move over to the, uh, the M&A. So a lot yep. of companies will do extensive due diligence yep. on their mergers that they're, or the companies that they're going to acquire, and the boards get involved, and then they look at the numbers, they think it's going to make sense, they look at it against the strategy. But then 
the merger happens. Yes. And the magic dies. <laughs> and the yes. HR tears out their head, their, not their head, their hair. <laughs> and everybody goes you know, nuts thinking, you know, this isn't going to work. What we're going to do, we're tied up in too many people. And, you know, the list goes on. And, and then they, they don't really, as the term is, you know, which is not my favorite term, extract the value out of it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. then they start looking at ways to how they can cut costs or they sell off divisions to say that, okay, that they they validated this acquisition. Yeah. But you've done something a little differently. So you we, dove we, into the companies after the fact, forgetting all this other stuff and this nonsense that was going on, and and been a little bit more creative on what well, next, right? Well, we have. You know, obviously, with all the due diligence, I mean, they bought this company, the, the, you know, the parent company, if you will, bought this, this other company for a reason. They saw right. a strategic opportunity. So, so that's a given. What typically often will face a big cultural merge challenge, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so who's going to, you know, where are we going to get efficiency? Who's going to get fired and all those kind of things? Right. Which is, you know, the classic way of thinking about it. And, 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 on, and often they will leverage the competencies of that uh, or capabilities or services or client relationships of that company they bought. What we've done is we've gone in pretty soon after the company was bought and we've done joint ideation sessions. These could be one, two days ideation sessions between the senior leaders of both organizations to ideate new possibilities for growth. Now, obviously, you know, there's the, the ones that they bought them for, so those right. were not ideating against the obvious things. But what we found is that when you do that and you look at the competencies of both organizations, you look at the market conditions, market opportunities, all those kind of things, different customers and targets and all that rest, that you can come up with dozens of new opportunities that where, to your point, one plus one equals three. Right. And these are, these are often unanticipated services or opportunities. And that does two things. The obvious one is it creates new opportunities, you know, right. new, new growth platforms and, and potential. But the other thing it does, which was, I don't know if it was unexpected, but we were happily surprised when we saw this, it begins the process of successfully integrating the two organizations. Hmm. And our experience has been when people, groups, teams, divisions, companies, whatever, can ideate together and can create their own future together, man, that goes so much further in terms of actually building that joint culture you want. Right. So they're no longer separate and competing against each other, but they're working towards a goal that they, they both mutually share and have created together as opposed to that's your side, that's my side. They are, and it's extraordinary because in this world of innovation, we, we will never go in, we call it the ta-da, we never go in and say, oh, here's the answer. We always involve the client in the process of doing that. Why? If, if they don't own it, it's, it, frankly, the chances of it happening are remote at right. best. Right. And so we want them to own it. And it's the same with these joint sessions between a newly acquired company and the, the parent company, if you will. This joint ideating together creates joint ownership and a team thing, and people get to know one another in ways they never could because they're being creative together. It's an extraordinary thing. And I think, frankly, any organization that buys another one should start with that because it does those two things that I mentioned. By the way, We've even done these joint things between a manufacturer and a retailer, for instance. Hmm. So we had a large food company. They were having trouble, and I can mention this because I won't be specific, but they were having trouble with a buyer at Walmart. And we did joint sessions between the buyer and the leadership team of this food company. You know, we spent three hours with the buyer in Bentonville 
one of the chances that you would ever get three hours with a buyer. And, and these are the customers of the, of the manufacturer, so that's even are. more unusual. They are, but the buyer wanted to be part of the process, and the mm-hmm. buyer then, we came up with all these ideas together. Well, these products are going to be launched uh, next month, as we did this in January. They're going to be launched mm-hmm. next month. Why? Because the buyer was part of the process. Yes. And and by the way, I, I didn't mention it, but these joint things create a tremendous efficiencies because you're you're all together on it. You're creating projects together. You don't waste the time. But you know, one says another, another says another. They think about it. They say no. You go back and forth, back and forth. No, you're all in it together, and you're pushing it. You're getting the ideas. You're deciding what you want mm-hmm. you want to go do, and you've got the team right there to go do it. Yeah, it, it reminds me of a story. Actually, a conversation that I had with a. Uh, it was a senior HR person at a very large um, Bell company, you know, yep. telephone company. Yep. And I remember them saying in, in a large audience saying, look, at, we've got this problem. Here's this particular effort that we're working on, and we can't make a profit on it. So instead of us doing it, we've decided to just give it to some small company to do and become our vendor delivering it back to us. Hmm. So, you know, which was – now I'm in a room of HR folks, which, you know, I, I – typically don't always do, but (laughs) not to bash the HR because some of my best friends are HR folks. But so I raised my hand, putting my business hat, you know, cap on and saying, so excuse me, Miss So-and-so, you've just admitted you can't make a profit on this particular service. So you're giving it to some small company, hoping that they will deliver it to you the way you want it at a loss. How do you right. expect them to stay in business in order to serve you? Next question. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Nancy. Who else has another? <laughs> Can you please remove that lady from the room? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because you, you said the emperor had no clothes or clothing yeah. or fashion designs or whatever. You know, I think in a broader sense, that is in part the responsibility of the board members. Yes. They, they need to be courageous and brave enough to ask that question that you asked. And, you know, a, a lot of them do, of course, but, sure. but, um, but, you know, it's not easy when you're the only one that, that realizes, you know, that there, you know, there are no clothes on that emperor. Right, you're the so. lunatic in the room pressing, <laughs> exactly. the, pressing the issue. And, you know, and so on, on that front, we talked a little bit earlier, uh, actually yesterday, about how the, how the board works. So, you know, part of the thing that the board talks about, and, and they talk in, in lots of associations, that their job is to responsibility is to protect the company, but to protect the company sure. for the shareholders. Yep. And the shareholders are owners in the business, which I, I'm not particularly 100% agreeable with that term, owners. Yep. And, and they're not really renters because they don't stay that long. And they're probably more like, as, as I sort of termed, voyeurs, because they're yeah. in and out so fast. Yeah. But if a company really wants a strong, positive relationship with an investor or a, a shareholder, maybe there's some way to invite them into this process in a different way to say, okay, so if you're involved in the business in some way, shape, or form, how can we serve you better and how can we work together? And there might even be some creative wargaming on the investor front that could happen. Well, I think that's a great idea. I, I never thought of it till you mentioned it just now. I but, didn't either. But, <laughs> so, <laughs> we're doing you know, a little disruption here. On. 
Well, I, you know, there are, um, as you probably know, there are now dozens and dozens of, they call them software management and crowdsourcing programs. Right. So, you know, Spigot, Azazi, Planbox, et cetera, et cetera. They, Bright, Bright Idea, et cetera, they work with organizations to elicit and solicit ideas both internally but occasionally externally. Mm-hmm. So they could act as, a, as an interim, you know, as, as sort of a, a bridge between shareholders and use them as, I mean, we do a tremendous amount of research in, in our innovation work, and so these might be lower cost and or effective uh, ways to do, to rese- do research, right. uh, cost-effective ways to do research with uh, shareholders. Right, and, and of course a lot of shareholders, I wouldn't say a lot of shareholders, but a certain segment of shareholders, a.k.a. activists, Um, consider that to be part of their job. You know, how do they go in? How do they create the relationship? You know, we are your your voice on the outside. And we know the business. And they, quite frankly, in many cases, they do know the business even better than some of the board members, especially in the smaller companies, because the depth and the breadth of the research that they do. Not that it's necessarily in the best interest of everybody. Because yep. it's in, in their best interest. That's what they want. But, you know, it's a, it's a different way of thinking about that relationship as opposed to just them and us or activists, you know, the good guys and the bad guys, you know, white hats, black hats kind of scenario. Yeah, I like that. I like that very much. You know, we, we always say, because we always tell our clients they know a lot more about their business than we ever will. Mm-hmm. Um, besides bringing ideation and research processes, when we go into the boardroom, typically, we're bringing in their customers or consumers or shareholders. That, frankly, is our role, because we've either talked to them or, you know, done ventures with them or, you know, ideated with them or ideated for them. And so I, I think, um, you know, I mean, we're a you know, an innovation agency, but I certainly think that board members can can take on that role as well. Right, right. Well, thank you, Brian. It really has been a pleasure spending time with you, as it always is. Well, and you. and I honestly, uh, I'm going to say there's probably room for many more conversations like this, and we'll plan them down the road in different scenarios and different conversations um, as time changes, but or advances and is disrupted, I should say, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> but well, um, as, we, as we leverage the changing environment for for a, a greater ROI. How's that? Yeah, you the got it. You, <laughs> so, so thanks again, Brian. It's thanks, been a pleasure. Man. This has been Brian, Brian Manamore, the CEO and co-founder of Growth Engine Company. And I'm Nancy May, your host here at Boardroom's Best from the Boardbench Companies. Take care. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders. RGP, Resources Global, the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.rgp.com.